the lesson that I had planned to give today, I never quite felt right about. I kept thinking all week that I wish I could put a little more in there. Uh, I'm not explaining the love of God well enough in this message. I wish I could have it about 50% longer. That just didn't work, and so I decided we'll go with it kind of as is and uh, just leave out some of the things I'd like to say. Uh, This weekend I was reading another book about the love of God and saw some things that made me even more want to put some more things in. Uh, I said, I really wish I could share that and get that in there somehow. Uh, So the weather gave me the opportunity to just kind of put this little bonus part in here for you uh, that are here and those that are live streaming. And then we'll uh, perhaps understand next week's lesson that was supposed to be this week a little bit better. Let me begin by reading from 1 John. Uh, We're talking about the love of God, and we often just pick a part out of this passage. In fact, three little words, God is love, and that's in this passage two times. But let's try to get the whole concept of what John is saying here about love and God's love and our love in 1 John 4. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. In us, we know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we're talking about the love of God, but see how much is included in that concept. The... the, the, Judgment that we're going to talk about on Sunday night in a couple of weeks is is in there. If we understand the love of God, the judgment of God is not a fearful thing. 
the way we live our life on earth, if we understand the love of God, if we know the love of God, then we love each other. If we understand the love of God and have that correct in our thinking and in our life, other people will see God through us. Uh, the whole Christian life, the whole Christian message is wrapped up in those few verses that I read. Now, the part that we like to talk about, the part that uh, we'll talk about next week is those three little words that are in there a couple of times. God is love. One scholar said of those three words, he said, that was the most daring statement in human language. And the first time I read that, I thought, what's he talking about? That's not that big a deal. I mean, John wrote it. It's right there. God is love. Everybody knows that. But if you step back out of our little group here, if you, you back up a little bit from Christianity... You back up a little bit and start to see the whole world of mankind. You understand what he meant. Because man doesn't come up with that kind of thing. Man-made gods, which is what we mostly have in the history of the world. Man-made gods, you don't talk about them that way. From the very very primitive, where they know nothing about God except what Romans 1 says, that they can see he's powerful, and he's some kind of divine thing. So they look around and they pick the volcano. They say, well, that's God. Okay, What do they attribute to that God? They don't talk about that volcano being loving and caring for them and concerned about them. They worry when the, the God gets mad at them. That's what gods do. And if they get mad enough, you've got to sacrifice something. You've got to throw some babies in or something and get him unmad. That's the way man thinks of gods. The old mythological gods, Zeus and Thor, whether you choose Greek or Roman or whatever, what were they like? They were a messed up, dysfunctional bunch. And they messed with man. They made his life miserable and played tricks and they were a mess. That's the way man dreams up gods. They're more powerful than us, but they're messed up like us. Look at the pagan gods. Baal, Ashtar are the ones we read about in the Old Testament. What were they like? Anybody think Baal was a loving god? Anybody think Moloch was a, a kind and concerned and caring God? No man doesn't dream up that kind of God. That's why this, the guy said, God is love is the most daring statement in human language. Because it's completely against human thinking. And the only way we can say that, the only way we know it, is because it's in this special revelation. This book tells us our God is love. Without this, we don't know that. Well, we can see some clues in nature and a few other things, but the reason we know that most daring thought is because the Bible says so. And it says it all the way through it. 
Psalm 119, the earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, God talked about his special love for his people, Israel. Now he talks about his special love for the church. John 3.16 says that he loves everybody. He loves the whole world. So much he was willing to give himself. So the Bible tells us this concept. And I think one of the most interesting ways to think about that is the words that are used for love and how the Bible picks this word that we translate love. And I know I've talked about this before, but it's because I think it's, it tells us so much about how we know that God is love. So let me just give you a real quick sign. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the love of God... There's four or five different words that are translated that way. Uh, but it, here, here's some of the meanings. Uh, affection of loving kindness. To be attached to. To favor. To have delight in. To delight in and be pleased with. Okay, those are the Old Testament words. And those kind of strike us as, well... What we do around here and what a family and we're attached to each other and we are devoted and we have delight in and we're pleased with and we have affection for. And then we get to the New Testament and a, twice, I think, the New Testament uses the word phileo, which means friend, and talks about being friendly with each other. God loves us like a, a friend. But the Greeks had some other words for love that the New Testament doesn't use. One is storge, which means family kind of love. You love your aunt and uncle, whether you know them or really like them very much. You, you have that family love for them. And the Bible doesn't use that word for God's love. The Greeks had another word, eros, which meant attracted to. The senses were attracted. You, sight, sound, touch, smell, feeling, emotion, attraction. The Bible doesn't use that one for the love of God. What the Holy Spirit did to describe the love of God is pick this Greek word that was kind of out there, but nobody really used it. It didn't mean anything. And he took it and put it in the Bible, the New Testament, and said, that's God's love. Agape is the word. Some people pronounce it agape, but you know what it is, agape. And that means exactly what the Holy Spirit says it means. Because there's no other way to find out. We know what storge meant, we know what... Arrows meant, we know what phileo meant, because people used them all the time. Here's one, when you get to it, a Greek scholar would say, well, I don't know what that word means. I've heard that word, but I don't know what it means, so I've got to read this passage and see what it means. And when I read that passage from 1 John 4, you could do that. You could just read what was being said and say, oh, that's God's love. That's what it's like. And it describes something that we know no other way. That's why it's the most daring thought 
in human language. It doesn't fit human thinking. It describes a kind of love that is completely different than all the kinds of love that man knows about. A lot of different definitions have been given for God's agape love. I told you I was reading this weekend and found some stuff I'd really like to share. This is, this is what one author said. He said, here's my definition. God's love is his self-giving affection and selfless concern that lead him to actively seek the happiness and well-being of his image-bearing creatures. That's kind of a long definition, and I wish we had had it up there where you could read it and all that. But let me go through there and pick just a few words out of there that I think will describe this agape love to us. One word he used is concern. Okay? God's concerned about us. He cares for us. Okay? He, uh, he's concerned with our well-being. That word's also in there. He wants to bless us. Think of all those other gods I mentioned. They're concerned with man. They care about him. They want to bless him. No. Not in there. It's not the way we think of God. Humans, anyway. But when God describes himself, when he picks this new word and says, here's what I'm like, he tells us about how he's concerned for us and he wants the best for us. Another word in there is self-giving. He desires to give of himself. Of course, the ultimate is the cross. But it's in other places. In the garden, Garden of Eden, in creation, in creation today, look around. Why do we have the beauties of creation that we have? God gave of himself. He dreamed these things up that nobody else could dream up. And he just wanted to share them with us. He's self-giving. Somebody sent me an email the other day. It was a picture of almost all flowers. I don't know if you got There were flowers in there I'd never seen before. Man, I don't know where they're from. They were, they were unbelievable. There were a couple of trees in there, too, that were really something, but mostly flowers. And they were colored in ways that I've never seen anything like it. And I've seen a lot of flowers, folks. But somebody got some pictures of some really exotic ones, and you, you're going scrolling through those, and you're thinking, wow, who designed this one? Well, you know who designed it. Who came up with this one? Why did he come up with this one? So I'd sit there and go, wow. That's why he just wanted to share some stuff. He's self-giving. Another word in there is action. Okay? It, this is not all just self-contained. He, he does something about it. He blesses us providentially. The Bible's full of how he wants to bless us and how he does bless us. He takes action sometimes in chastisement. He loves us so much he needs to chastise us a little bit. Parents ever say that? 
Yeah, it's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know? Because <laughs> I'm doing this because I love you. Well, it's, it's trite and it's, we pass it off as a cliche, but it's true most of the time. God says, I chastise my children. He took action on the cross, didn't he? That's what John said in 1 John 4. This is how we know what love is. Not that he says it. Not that he says he's concerned. Not that he says he's self-giving. But he took action. He, he did it. The last word I want to pick out of that definition is affection. It says... He has an affection for us. And I think we leave, we leave that out a lot of the time. We get on this agape and we think it's a decision of the will and it's self-giving and, and it is all of that. But it's got affection in there. He loves us that much. Now, the Word tells us that and God's definition tells us that. But then Jesus told parables and God used analogies. He said, here's how I love you. And he tried to tell us things that we'd get. He said, I love you like a father loves a child. I love you like a mother loves a child. I love you like a husband loves a wife. I love you like a shepherd loves his flock and cares for it. He gives us all these pictures to try to help us start thinking about what this love is. Now, that's what the Bible says about God's love. And all. Now, the part we're talking about is another problem in understanding God's love because what happens when sin enters the picture? We've just been talking about how he loves us, how he loves his creatures, how he loves his image-bearing creatures, how he's concerned for us and self-giving and all of that. What happens when sin comes into the picture? Now we got the problem. That's the problem we're going to talk about next week. We were going to talk about this week because God is not just love. He is love, but he's also some other thing. Remember, he's perfectly holy. And being perfectly holy, he can't stand sin. He can't have it in his presence. He detests it. He hates it. We've learned all that. But now we're starting to learn about this other part of God, and since it's an ultimate part of God, that he is love, and those are in conflict. Because he loves us, his love shows up, well, his holiness shows up in, in wrath. Because he's holy, he's got to punish, he's got to exhort his wrath. But his love shows up, because he loves us, when sin enters the picture, his love shows itself in mercy and patience and grace. He, he wants to forgive. That's why Brother Larry read that passage from Exodus 34. That was for next week's lesson. In fact, after I said I was going to change it, he passed me a little note. He says, Exodus 34 is still good? Exodus 34 is always good. <laughs> 
but it's still good for this sermon. Because God's explaining himself. It happened after Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God said, well, can't do that, but nobody can handle that. But if you hide over there in the crevice, I'll let you see a little bit of me. I'll tell you about myself a little bit. So he did in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. He said, I'm merciful. I'm compassionate. I want to forgive. Yeah, I punish. But I love. And those are the two parts we're going to talk about next week. That's the, the, the problem we've got is how does God work this out? He does it by coming up with the, the best plan ever. Uh, the reason I want to stress these two is because if we just look at one of them, which we tend to do with God is love. That's kind of the biggie for us. Since it says God is love. Of course, it also says he's holy. He is holy. But we like this God is love one. So we get confused sometimes. We get to discussing ethical topics, things like war and capital punishment and all of that, and we get to think, well, God is love. So how does this work? How, how could he possibly be for that and all that? Well, he's not a love-only God. It's ultimate him, but he's also ultimately holy. So. You could say that his love and his holiness are in tension. There's, there's an opposition there. Because he loves, he wants to bestow patience and mercy and grace. But because he's holy, he's got to pour out wrath. Yeah. A couple of weeks we'll figure out that his plan, how, how he handled that. But I hope that explanation of love makes that a little clearer when we talk about next week how we understand both sides of God. Let me ask you this. What's the, if I ask you, what's the most famous story in the world? I, I really don't know. I don't know if anybody's polled the whole world and found out, but I think the top two would probably be the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. I think those are probably the two best-known stories in the world. Uh, Jesus told both of them, of course. And I, if I had to guess between the two, I think probably the prodigal son is the most famous story ever told. And it's not even named right. You know, we call it the story of the prodigal son. It's not about the son. It's the story of the loving father. Is what it's about. That's what Jesus was trying to explain. And Jesus didn't explain everything. There's nowhere in there you read about the wrath of the Father. He just tells us about the love, and that's why he was trying to get people to understand. Because in that day, just like today, that's the most daring thought in human language. That God is love. Not the way the Jews saw him. He was kind of a Mount Sinai guy. You know, when he talks, you better stay away. You better ask Moses to talk so you don't have to hear him talk. 
Because he's a frightening thing. That's the way they thought about him. So Jesus told this story, along with all these other stories about God, but this is the, I think, the most became the most famous because it's the clearest about the loving father. And he makes up this story about this son who does everything wrong that a son could do wrong. Yeah, he disrespects dad. He makes demands when he doesn't really have any right to make demands. He says, I want my inheritance now. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And then he, once he gets out, he goes and does everything wrong a kid could do wrong. You know the story. And then at the end of it, he decides to come home. A part of that story that I think we sometimes don't think about much, we think about, well, he just got fed up and it was such a bad thing and all that. What was the change in his mind? When he left home, what did he think about home? He thought home was a restrictive, oppressive, no fun place. That's the way he thought of home. It's like slavery. I got to do everything the old man tells me. You know, I don't have any freedom here. This is not fun. And what did he think of the far land where he went off to? He thought, now there's freedom. Yeah, that's that's going to be fun. That's a that's some excitement there. Well, a few months or years, I don't know how long it took, but sometime later when he's in the pig pen and he decides to go home, if you ask him what he thinks of home, what's he say now? Oh, home's a good place. Man, I miss home. Home's where they love you. Home's not oppressive. Home's a good life. Home's freedom. What do you think about the far land now, boy? Oh, the far land's like slavery. It's oppression. It's horrible. I want to be freed from this. Had home and the far land changed a bit? No, actually, absolutely the same place they'd always been. His perceptive changed. His picture of what he thought about things had completely changed because he had experienced now. Now he wanted the freedom of home. He didn't want the slavery of sin. He wanted to be free from sin. His understanding of the Father changed. He thought the Father just makes all these rules and tells me to do all these things and all that. He's just mean. He's hateful. He's oppressive. I can't take this slavery. After his sojourn, what did he say? Man, if I could just be a slave to daddy. My, my daddy's a good slave master. He treats his slaves better than I got it. I'll go back and just see if I can be a slave. So he tried that. He decided to go home and try to be a slave. And he walks up to his father. His father runs to meet him. You know the story. And he says, Dad, could I just be... He says, be quiet, son. You're back. You're back. 
my son, my son. And he started in on him with the, the tears and the hugs, the robes and the rings and the, the banquets and, and the total welcome home. Kind of a preposterous story, unless you're trying to explain God. That's what Jesus was trying to do, to explain to humans who don't think this way. He said, that's what God's like. God is love. Some of us haven't figured it out yet. We had not changed our mind about who the Father is. Not ready to go home yet. There's folks that still think sin is freedom. Hadn't learned enough yet. Hadn't learned enough about God or enough about sin. In this series, we're trying to, trying to learn that. But uh, that's my message today is God is love. And now that we know what that means, it hopefully helps us make a decision if we need to. Maybe you're ready to go home this morning. If you are, the Father's ready to. If you need to respond, come. Let's stand and sing.